This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. Hello, good morning, and you're very welcome to Talking Books with me, Susan Cahill. Well, it's Bank Holiday Sunday, so we're going to take it nice and easy and embrace what's best about a lazy, relaxed Bank Holiday weekend. So I'm going to go back to basics, and we're going to enjoy a bit of fine storytelling and some worthy words with some of Ireland's best writing talent. We're going to hear from one of the gents of the industry, Joe Joyce, on why he prefers writing historical fiction than the day job in the Irish Times. The great advantage of historical fiction, I think, is that you don't have the total isolation and total blank page of actual fiction, where the page is so blank you have no idea where to start, whereas with historical fiction you can start against a real background and uh, try and put yourself back into the position of people at that time. And poet, dramatist and all-round superman, Dermot Bulger highlights the importance of words to everyday living. Well, Arthur Scargill once said that his, his father read a page of the dictionary every night that if you didn't understand the words, the bastards would screw you down. I mean, and there's a lot to be said for that. So, I mean, like, this is why in, in, in Orwell's 1984, they, when they walk on the dictionary, they're taking words out the whole time because the less words you have, the less you're able to understand the subtleties of language and the more you're likely to be screwed over by life. And the more words you have, the more you understand, the more you can read, then the more you can navigate your way around the very difficult business of living. But first, historian, journalist and writer Joe Joyce needs no introduction. For over 40 years, Joe has charmed readers with his slick, crafty and insightful writing. Well, Talking Books was delighted to catch up with Joe and hear about his latest book, Echoland. Echoland is set in Dublin in June 1940, as France is collapsing before the German Blitzkrieg, and it appears that nothing can stop them winning the war. The central character is a 20-year-old army officer, Paul Duggan, who has moved suddenly from Western Command into G2, the military intelligence unit, in Army headquarters in Dublin. His main task is to investigate a German businessman who is a suspected spy, but his uncle also involves him in a search for his cousin, who has disappeared. His uncle believes she may have been kidnapped. Let's take a listen. My name is Joe Joyce and my latest novel is Echoland, set in Ireland during the so-called emergency, in other words, the Second World War, 1940. The main character is a young intelligence officer called Paul Duggan, who's 20-ish or so, who is given the job of following a suspected German spy. And along with a special branch detective, they follow him around the place and uh, he has a daily ritual of walking from his apartment in Merrion Square down to Grafton Street. And ever so often he goes into the laundry department of Switzer's department store in Grafton. Street, and uh, they suspect purely to embarrass them because they must follow them in. So they're arguing in this uh, extract of which of them is going to follow him in today. It's your turn to stick with Hansie today, Gifford said as they followed Harbush and Eliza along Marion Square, to examine the knickers and switzers. No, it's not, Duggan said. You're more experienced at that. Oh, come on, Gifford groaned. Let me stick with Eliza, the only remaining pleasure in my life. What? Has she ditched you? Who? Sinead. Gifford gave him a look. Are you thick or just pretending to be thick? I'm tired, Duggan said. The few hours sleep had left his brain feeling mushy. He'd have been better off staying up all night. Another great night's work, Gifford laughed. You heard all about it. Our lads were delighted, almost. 
thought you so-called intelligence men had really fucked up, but we were saved at the last minute. So I heard, Gifford said with an air of regret. Your friend Sullivan won't be court-martialed after all. They crossed into Clare Street. Ahead of them, Harbush and Eliza were approaching South Leinster Street at their normal stately pace, she tottering on her high heels, linking him. They looked neither left nor right. I'm not going into Switzer's after him, Duggan said. You have to, Gifford said. You're the one who said we all have to go on pretending to be thick. We have to pretend that we don't know that Hansi and Eliza know that we're following them while they pretend that they don't know either. We're looking for changes in behaviour, remember. Duggan took out his cigarettes, needing a nicotine boost to get his brain functioning again. The packet was empty. I need some cigarettes, he said. I'll catch up with you. He turned back towards the tobacconist that they had just passed and caught sight of a man behind him who also turned suddenly and disappeared into Green's bookshop. He didn't get a good look at him. His attention caught only by the sudden movement, just a dark suited shape. He went into the shop, bought ten often, and peeled cellophane from the packet as he came out, stopping on the footpath to take out a cigarette and look back. There was no sign of anyone like the figure he had seen. He lit the cigarette and hurried after Gifford. I think we're being followed, he said, when he caught up with him. He told him what he had seen. Thanks be to God, Gifford said. Some excitement at last. What'll we do? Go on pretending, of course, Gifford gave him an evil grin. We'll pretend that we don't know that he's following us while we're following Hansie, and he's pretending that he doesn't know that we're following him. Jesus, Duggan muttered, inhaling deeply and feeling the nicotine sharpen up his brain a little. They stopped at the bottom of Dawson Street to let a car go by, and we'll set a trap for him, Gifford added. On Grafton Street, Harbush went into Switzer's and idled his way through the laundry department as usual. Duggan followed at a discreet distance, avoiding the eyes of the sales assistants behind the counter and the few women customers. "'Can I help you?' a young assistant asked as he went by her. "'Ah, no thanks. Just looking, are you?' she said in a tone that was anything but sweet. He mumbled and moved on, wishing Harbush would get this part of the ritual over. Eventually he made his way to the Wicklow Street door, went out and turned into Grafton Street." Terrific stuff, Joe. I don't think knickers would actually embarrass a young 21-year-old or 20-year-old boy from around the country today. Probably not, but I think it was a very different world in 1940, and uh, I suspect that uh, not very many men of any age uh, wandered into uh, the laundry department of uh, a department store like like Switzer's at the time. And uh, in a sense, this is why this uh, German, who is a much more experienced older man, and uh, likes to go in and uh, click his heels and uh, say uh, "Guten Tag, Fräulein" to all the assistants and so on, is enjoying himself, embarrassing our our young intelligence men. And he's playing a deeply psychological game. He is playing a psychological game. I mean, what they can't figure out really about him is whether he is really a spy or whether he isn't. He doesn't appear to do anything very much, except he does send letters and receives letters from various uh, addresses in uh, Denmark and in Switzerland, which G2, the Army Intelligence Department, know are uh, involved with the Abwehr, the German intelligence. Can you tell me about the challenges writing about a very shadowy time in Irish history and how you went about the process? Because although we were in an emergency and we we were diplomatically neutral. There were lots of compromises to that, lots of contradictions embedded in that neutrality. Oh, there were indeed. I mean, it was an, an era full of ambiguity and uh, different um, opinions and so on, and a very, very dangerous time, in fact. How I went about the research, I suppose I went about it in several different ways. I mean, I've always been interested in that period, so I've read about it over the years, and there have been, as you know, more and more books appearing about this uh, period over the years. But from a writer's point of view, I was uh, dipping in to lots of things like the newspapers of the time, just picking up uh, details about uh, life as it was and um, the city as it was in in those days. Um, But it was, as you say, a very uh, dangerous time. Uh, There are lots of people who uh, wanted uh, the Germans to win. And in the period where this uh, novel is set, June 1940, it appeared absolutely certain that they were going to win because France had just 
collapsed. Uh, there were lots of people who wanted the British to win and I think there's no doubt that the majority wanted to keep out of it as much as possible but whether that was possible or not was the big question. Now Joe, the two main characters Gifford and Duggan are very young, they're only 20 years of age and they're working for G2 and there's essentially doing special investigations on spying but they've very different approaches and they're very different men. They are very different. The main character, Paul Duggan, is a young lad of 20 who has been a young officer, a lieutenant in the army in an infantry battalion in Western Command. He's from the country, he's from the West, and he has moved into uh, G2, the intelligence department at Army Headquarters in Dublin, partly because he speaks German, which he learned at school, and partly because his uncle is a Fianna Fáil backbencher who has pulled strings to get him in there because he wants to know what's really going on himself. And Duggan suspects this, uh, but uh, doesn't get on terribly well with his uncle, who, like his father, was involved in the uh, IRA in the War of Independence. So he's coming from that kind of background and in a sense he's our eyes and ears into the Dublin of 1940 because the city is new to him. The job is totally new to him. He has no idea what's going on most of the time. Uh, He ends up uh, with uh, a special branch sidekick, Peter Gifford, who is a year or two older but is uh, much more worldly wise, a much smarter guy uh, in many respects uh, and a bit of a maverick who's given this uh, lowly job because he's uh, in a sense, too much of a smart ass, and his, his uh, superiors uh, really are, get very impatient with him. So he ends up helping Duggan with some inquiries of his own, even though both of them are under instructions from their respective bosses not to tell the other anything about what they know. And what's interesting is they both have very different instincts, and they're it's somewhat morally quite different. They are. They have, they have different instincts. As I say, uh, Gifford is more of a maverick. Uh, Duggan is more a uh, serious guy who's uh, grown up in the shadow of independence, in a sense. I mean, he would have been born roughly around the time of the uh, War of Independence. Uh, his father and his uncle were both active. Uh, his father kept out of the Civil War. His uncle uh, sided with the anti-treaty forces and ended up in Fianna Fáil as a, as a backbench TD. His father and his uncle don't really get on anymore for reasons he doesn't understand, which has something to do with things that happened in the past, but his father never talks about it. So uh, Gifford is more uh, worldly, hail fellow, well met kind of character who doesn't take anything too seriously or doesn't appear to take anything too seriously, but it is also uh, very sharp. Can we talk a little bit about uh, the two female characters in the book? We have Nula, who has disappeared, who um, Duggan is chasing, and we also have the very elusive Sinead, who is the occasional or shall I say on-off girlfriend of Gifford. Yes, Nula is Duggan's cousin, the daughter of his uncle, the Fianna Fáil backbench TT and uh, one of his problems once he gets into G2 is uh, his uncle comes to him and says Nula has disappeared, I want you to find her and he has no idea how to go about this. Also, he doesn't know Nula very well except that she's very like her father uh, who is a very manipulative person who enjoys putting one over on other people but he is is dragged along and manages, uh, with the help of Gifford, to try and find out what has happened to her. Sinead, on the other hand, is uh, a receptionist in the uh, office which they're using as their uh, surveillance base on uh, the suspected German spy, Hans Harbusch. They are both on and off flirting with her and she with one or other of them. So it's not entirely clear where that's uh, all going, but it will all work out somewhere in the end. Now, you have been a journalist for over 40 years and your column in the Irish Times is very well known and you've written two other thrillers as well apart from your 
extraordinarily successful book on C.J. Hawhey, The Boss with Peter Murta. Tell me, did you base Clifford and Duggan on any characters that you met through the research or any personalities? Like, I imagine you brought your journalistic flair to the research. I suppose uh, I I did in a sense, but probably more in the sense of the uh, background politics of what was going on during the emergency period and the various arguments and um, attitudes of people uh, towards uh, neutrality, towards Britain, towards Germany. But uh, in relation to the character uh, no, the characters are, are totally uh, made up. I suppose, uh, like most writers, there are probably aspects of myself uh, that Gifford is the guy I would have wanted to be, a bit of a maverick and uh, very sharp and smart, and uh, Duggan was more the guy I actually was. I imagine, though, that you know, you've been writing all your life, and here you are, you've just written two very good thrillers. Did you have a little bit more fun with the historical fiction? Because you can really develop things. Like as a journalist, you know, you have to really report the facts or you're very compromised and so is your newspaper. Uh, that's absolutely true, actually. I mean, in one sense, it's taken me 40 years to realise that probably historical fiction is the most interesting thing to write. I've also written uh, several non-fiction books um, as, as well as The Boss with my friend Peter Murta. I've done a history of the Guinnesses, which involved an enormous amount of original research. Uh, and the great thing about historical fiction is that you can do a certain amount of research and when you come up against the inevitable cul-de-sacs you can say oh to hell with that I'll just make it up from here on you know at the same time I've been quite careful in this book that the historical background is as far as I know accurate and the details of what's going on in the background are accurate although there's some playing around with the timelines and so on for purposes of the plot but the great advantage of historical fiction I think is that you don't have the total isolation and total blank page of actual fiction where the page is so blank you have no idea where to start whereas with historical fiction you can start against a real background and uh, try and put yourself back into the position of people at that time and that's very much what this book is trying to do and that's what the main character Paul Duggan is he's very much our eyes and ears into 1940s Dublin which is new to him in several respects as well and I think students of history are lovers of history who have read the likes of Claire Willis her fine book on Irish neutrality are the incredibly interesting you know happens book and spying in Ireland or David O'Donoghue or Dermot Keogh or any of the great Irish historians today that this actually goes a lot further because when I was reading the book last night and I was sitting back very comfortably on the couch I found myself laughing I enjoyed all the references of the different cafes and getting on and off the bike and all, all, the, all that jazz that went with it it's so atmospheric that it allowed me to actually be in the history that I've known about ever since university so I think that in itself really helps the reader and makes it makes so much more satisfying. Yeah, thank you very much. That is very much what I was intending to to do in the book. There are, as you mentioned, lots of very good historical uh, books about that period, but they don't really give you a sense of uh, the uncertainty of the period. Another uh, historical um, uh, fiction writer, uh, Robert Goddard, mentioned at a recent uh, conference in, in Dublin Castle, people in the past didn't realise they were living in the past, you know, and we don't realise we're living in somebody else's past, and we always think that the past was a much easier time and much simpler because we know what happened. But, of course, people in the past didn't know what was going to happen. What I was trying to do, particularly through the character of Duggan, he's in the army. There's every possibility that Ireland is going to be invaded by either the Germans or the British or both. And he is quite nervous in his own mind about how he will get on when the shooting war starts because he's going to be in the firing line. And how skilled were our Irish G2 guys as compared to British intelligence? Like, I think a lot of listeners now would be surprised to learn about G2 and how they were operating at that time. So can you describe the kind of the conditions or the kind of circumstances that they faced? 
Well, they faced very difficult circumstances because on the one hand, they were trying to keep tabs on uh, various uh, suspected uh, German spies and German spies kept coming to Ireland, I don't know, perhaps a dozen altogether over over the period, most of whom were picked up very fast. But they also had to keep an eye on the British and at the same time, they were cooperating quite closely with the British. I mean, one of the big secrets of, of the war was the uh, relationship uh, with the British and the uh, secret plans for uh, joint operations with the British. British Army in the north, which were, were drawn up in, in, in considerable detail of how they were going to respond to a, to a German invasion. So they had to be on their toes all the time. They wouldn't obviously have had anything like the resources of the uh, British intelligence establishment, MI5, MI6, uh, or, or the Americans. But uh, you do come across things where, you know, uh, shows that uh, they played quite a sharp role. It does, uh, I think, in intelligence work, it probably does come down to individuals at the end of the day how smart and in a sense how devious they are and tell me joe it's it's very clear from reading the book that you did a you know tremendous amount of research i can see you just there now beavering down in the military archives with your cup of coffee spending hours but i imagine you were you were surprised by some of the revelations through your research because not everything was as clear cut as it seemed we all know herman gertz parachuted into county mead and wandered around wicklow and dublin and lots of uh, you know families took him in and of course there was also a very prominent german community here in Ireland. And of course, we had the interesting Adolf Marr. Well, there are interesting sidelights. I mean, what I was looking for was I wasn't approaching this research as a historian and uh, not even really as a journalist, except in the sense that one of the things I have learned from journalism and is the importance of detail. And it's always the telling little detail. And insofar as, uh, say, our book on Charlie Hawhey, uh, The Boss, was uh, such a success, I think it was down to the very telling details. So what I was looking for in a lot of these things was not the big picture, but was the telling little detail about uh, somebody's life, what they did, what they thought, and so on. So uh, I found it fascinating that uh, somebody like Hermann Goertz, who was the most important German spy here during the war, really got totally, totally impatient with the Irish. He couldn't stand all what he called the backstabbing and all the... uh, Everybody he met was telling him bad stories about everybody else he met and all trying to keep control of him. And uh, he got very, very impatient indeed with the IRA who were split all over the place. He actually spent most of his time in Ireland uh, trying to leave the country. But of course, it was very difficult to leave the country because it was very difficult to get back to Germany at the time. And he died rather dramatically. He died very dramatically. Uh, He wanted to stay in Ireland at the end of the war and some some of the Germans were allowed to stay in Ireland but for some reason he didn't want to be repatriated. The government actually were, it seems, in favour of not sending him back but the British insisted upon it. I think his fear was that he was going to be sent back to the Russian zone of Germany but in any event he, he uh, appealed and appealed and appealed and uh, I think it was 1947 or 48 when finally he was uh, called into the aliens office which was in Dublin Castle at the time to be told that his final appeal had failed and that he was going to be put on a plane the following day and he immediately took out a cyanide capsule, crunched it in his mouth, collapsed and was rushed off to hospital and died. Extraordinary dramatic, isn't it? But I suppose, what would you expect of a senior operative? It was extraordinarily dramatic, and I mean, it certainly proved that he he absolutely did not want to be sent back to Germany for whatever reason. I mean, he had been uh, is an interesting man himself. He was, he was a lawyer. He had actually studied in Edinburgh University, which is why he was very uh, good at English. He he was um, a Luftwaffe pilot in the, in the First World War. Uh, uh, he was arrested in England for uh, spying on airfields in the 1930s and jailed for a couple of years. So. 
by the time he came to Ireland, he was uh, in his 50s, I think, uh, or thereabouts. And his uh, determination not to be sent back to uh, Germany at the end of the war was obviously uh, very, very strong. Now, one of the unusual quirks in the book is that Gifford, who is in his early 20s, as he said, actually appeared in one of your first books, I think, Off the Record. Yes, I suppose that's true. I mean, he does appear in Off the Record uh, as a Garda uh, detective sergeant who is uh, still a bit of a maverick. And uh, in that book, uh, the uh, central character is a journalist and uh, Gifford is one of his main sources. In fact, his only source of uh, real information of what's really happening. But he's never uh, the journalist never too clear what game Gifford is actually playing. So he was seen as a very successful character in that book. So uh, in a sense, he plays the same kind of role in this book uh, for Duggan, who is uh, an absolute outsider in many respects and is trying to find his way through this maze of all sorts of things that are going on around him. And I think for male readers, for definite, that they'll enjoy the differences between the two characters because one is definitely your best pal or, you know, one is the one that you want to go out for points with. Um, Predictable, spontaneous, incredibly interesting. Yeah, well, I I, dis- I discovered uh, as I was writing the book that in in one sense this was turning into one of these buddy novels, you know, <laughs> and, uh, which hadn't been the intention at all. But they are, they are quite different characters, and they do become close friends, even though they're working for rival agencies, and there is no love lost really between G two and uh, say the Garda Special Branch. They each uh, have very low opinions of the other. So, Joe, what's next? You're presumably going to stick to the historical fiction now. Uh, what's next is a follow-up book to Echo Land, set six months later at a strange period in, uh, around the New Year of 1941, with the same characters to an extent and uh, doing slightly similar things, but uh, they've all uh, moved on quite a bit. It is a, uh, meant to be a thriller, so I hope there are surprises for the reader. And uh, in relation to the background about the actual war and uh, the real background, there are interesting sidelights on the realities of the war and all all the little kind of details and uh, events that get written out of history when history becomes, you know, a polished story and everything is used to fit into it. But there are always things that actually don't fit into the final polished story as it is handed down years and years later.
And in case you're wondering what you heard there, yes, you've got it. We heard The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, played by the outstandingly talented Yo-Yo Ma. Perfect for a bank holiday Sunday, don't you think? Coming up next, we look at the very challenging issue of adult literacy and crime writer Alex Barkley gets all FBI. Talking books on News Talk 106 to 108. Thanks for listening to this News Talk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.